Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Selective Hearing. I'm your host, Julie DeMar, and this week I am here with Miss Susie Schwartz. And today we're going to have a big conversation about toxic positivity. And you may be asking yourself, what does that mean? How can positivity be toxic? It can, and we are going to tell you a hundred ways why. And I also will be discussing with Susie her new book, Help the Doctor Help You, 31 Secrets and Tips for Self-Advocacy to Help You Get the Best from Your Appointments. And you will understand why we are discussing this book today while talking about toxic positivity as well. So as always, before I get started, I love to give you the floor and just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got here today. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Julia. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, a little bit about me now. I uh, am a Canadian, but I'm living in the UK, have been for 10 years with my husband and my little chihuahua, Carlos. And so we're a happy little family over here in the English countryside. And I'm a writer and musician um, as well. Going back in time, um, my kind of story as uh, it unfolded started at the age of nine with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. So that almost killed me, to be honest. Uh, I ended up being rushed to the hospital in and out of consciousness. I spent two weeks there, about four days in the intensive care unit to begin with for them to kind of revive me and then the rest of the time to treat and train me and my mom on how to handle this beast of a disease. That kind of set the stage for my collection of illnesses after that. And I just want to say that this is important to me. While I was in the hospital for that two weeks with the diabetes, there was a doctor there that gave me red wagon rides up and down the, the hall each morning in, during his rounds. And that is important because I think that set the stage for me that doctors can really care about people and they want to care about people and that's why they're doctors. And so it set me up for success with my medical professionals. But more on that later, carrying on with the happenings in my life, I developed early stages of kidney disease in my teens needing a kidney biopsy. It was at, at that stage of my life that I had a doctor say, if you don't get better control of your diabetes, you will be dead by 25. Now, <laughs> example of maybe perhaps not a great tactic from a doctor. I don't think fear is a good motivator. I think encouragement is. And it still resonates with me because I feel sometimes like I'm living on borrowed time. Um, I'm much beyond 25 now, but also I kind of feel like I'm still here. I did it. Uh, you were wrong. Um, but I also did start taking better care of myself in my late 20s. So that I'm sure has something to do with it. I did develop some complications from the diabetes. So I, I should back up and just say my kidneys are holding strong uh, these days. So that isn't a concern. They're doing well. It kind of was my first introduction to things that can go wrong from diabetes. So then in my, I would say early 20s, I developed fibromyalgia, so a lot of muscle aches, joint aches. Um, thankfully, my endocrinologist, my diabetes specialist actually recognized it. So I didn't have to, you know, fight to be believed like a lot of, of patients do. Um, and she knew what it was. Um, I had heard of it before, but got the diagnosis. And so that's just part of my daily life now. I manage it the best I can. Also in my early 20s, well, actually I was 21. On the first day of our honeymoon, I woke up with a soaking wet t-shirt. And that is because I was lactating. And we won't get into why I was wearing a t-shirt on my honeymoon, my poor husband. But... <laughs> 
anyhow, I <laughs> never mind. We're over that now. But um, something was clearly wrong. I had not just had a baby, nor was I pregnant. So I should not have been lactating. And so we carried on with our honeymoon. But when I got back, I had some appointments. And sure enough, I had a tumor on the front of my brain on my pituitary gland that needed removing. So brain surgery ensued. I'll just say this. I had a catheter for the first few days. And when they took it out, I didn't pee for about 24 hours because that's how badly I did not want to move my head and get out of bed. So anyway, I hope to never have to repeat that. Although in my follow-up appointment, that's when the surgeon said, actually, it could grow back. So I still have regular blood tests to monitor that. I've had to have a few MRIs because my bloods have been out of whack and so that's been a scare but again so far no more regrowth so that's that's good and then fast forwarding to about the age of 30 i went to my ophthalmologist for a routine eye appointment and um, as someone with diabetes every year they would give your eyes a check after year after year of him saying well your eyes look normal for having di diabetes as long as you have which I just latched on to your eyes look normal. This appointment, he said something very different. He said, Suzanne, you are in stage four retinopathy. And that's the worst stage, by the way. He said, we need to immediately do laser surgery. And retinopathy, in case you're wondering, is because of the sugar in the blood, your eyes are trying to get more oxygen. So it creates more blood vessels, but they're useless and they just leak and cause blindness. So he said, we need to laser your eyes multiple times to try to stop those blood vessels from growing. You still might go blind and then we'll have to do eyeball surgery, which happened. <laughs> so first of all, my left eye went and uh, had a massive bleed that no one else can see. It's internal, but it blocked my sight from the inside. And so... I had a vitrectomy, which included the surgeon putting a hoover into my eyeball and sucking out all the blood, which is crazy because you cannot go under general anesthetic when you have eyeball surgery because what happens when we sleep, our eyes move. So they need you awake to do the surgery. So they just freeze the eye. So I'm awake while this is happening. I see the vacuum cleaner in from the inside in my eyeball. So it was like twilight zone, let me tell you. So after the surgery, I said to Mr. Doctor, um, like, was that supposed to happen? And he said, oh, it, it can happen. You should have said something. And I'm like, really? Like probably not gonna start moving my face whilst having a Hoover inside my eyeball. So anyway, got through it. It did regain my sight, which I'm very thankful for. But a few months later, my right eye did the same. This time I didn't see the Hoover, but I felt it. Neither of those were fun surgeries. But again, I'd like to state here and now, so thankful for my sight. I'm driving, I'm reading. I can see you, Julie, and that is a gift. So that too is a threat. Uh, we have to monitor that still regularly. And I have developed a couple of other eye diseases in the process of monitoring that. So my eyes are, are struggling a little bit, but uh, we're, we're managing so far. And then because of neuropathy from the diabetes, I have both peripheral neuropathy, which is like the burning, tingling pain that diabetics will get in their feet and hands, although I get that burning, tingling pain everywhere. Also, I have uh, autonomic neuropathy, which is when your internal organs are supposed to do their job on their own, don't. And so my gastrointestinal system is very much affected. And it was so bad at one point, they said your last hope is a gastric pacer implant. So they put this little machine in my belly, wormed some wires up to my stomach in 
order to stimulate movement. It went horribly wrong. I couldn't eat for two years. I was in agony all the time. Didn't do its job and it had to come out. And thankfully, I guess, thanks to dietary changes, lifestyle changes, and maybe some good luck, I am I'm still here without the machine and wasn't my last hope. And it's part of my my daily life. I, I deal with the symptoms and have to do some procedures, but I'm not dying. So I'll take that. Um, and then most recently, I in the last six or seven years or so, I developed ME, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And that got so bad. We think it was that there's always a threat of MS as well. But it got so bad that I was absolutely bedridden for a couple of months during COVID where I couldn't, I was not strong enough to push the buttons on my insulin pump. Um, I couldn't feed myself, couldn't sit up without help. My husband had to do absolutely everything. And that was a pretty dark time. I was also in body-wide pain and had a migraine continually. So I, at that point, honestly wanted to die. So I've been through a bit of, you know, dark times. That and when I was going blind were really difficult times in my life. But I did not give up and I'm doing so much better now. Some days my legs don't work. Some days my arms don't work. Some days I'm just too fatigued to have a conversation. I'm in mild, dipping into moderate, um, the odd time, you know, kind of stages of that. So again, so thankful for the improvement because it was pretty dire for a while. So those are kind of the highlights of my story. I could go on. The list is long, but yeah, those are the highlights. So yeah, I've seen a lot of doctors. And I'm assuming that that is what motivated you Mm -hmm. and inspired you to write this book. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Because here's the thing. I like I'm kind of deep in the chronic illness world online. I see so many people struggling with relationships with their doctors and they feel like unheard, unseen, uh, misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, all of these things. And I look back and I think I have such a strong medical team and I'm so thankful for them. But like, why might that be? And I realize from all my years of experience. I counted once. I have had over a thousand blood tests out of the arm. So I've had that many blood tests. You can imagine how many doctor's appointments I've had because I don't have blood tests every doctor's appointment I have. So anyways, there's been thousands of appointments and I've realized that we can be empowered as patients at the doctor's office. And I really think a key to that is humanizing our doctor So seeing them as a person with their own cares and troubles, with their own families, if they're running late, they don't want to be late. They have kids to get to soccer or whatever. They have to give bad news to people regularly. I think humanizing them is is one way to help them humanize us. And I just think there's a, a lot of ways that we can, you know, be prepared, be seen as a person and not just a patient or a number. I wrote the book because I think there's there's something that's in there that people might know, but they might not remember them all the time um, or really understand the reasoning. But I just think that if you apply kind of the things that, that I've learned and, you know, a lot of people in the chronic illness world are learning, there's a lot less need to break up with doctors. Like, I think we you know, jump to the struggles. We sometimes go in defensive or we had a bad experience with one doctor. So we kind of take that into the next appointment or whatever. And I just think we can help set the tone for our appointments and we can earn respect from the doctors, which really, really matters. 
So yes, that's why I wrote my book. I'm going to circle back to something you said. I was speaking to someone about how we tend to dehumanize people that have certain titles and hold certain positions. And you said like, we need to remember that our, our doctors are human. And I think that that is just another kind of example of that. We tend to put doctors in a position where they're supposed to know it all, fix it all, be it all, and see it all. When it's like a lot of what they do is research-based. I don't want to call us guinea pigs people, but I mean, when we come in, their job is to test us, research us, question us, and study us, essentially, until they can find out the problem. We can't walk in and say, hey, this hurts. And the doctor say, oh, this is exactly what it is. They have a laundry list of things that, that my arm hurts, what it could actually be. Yes. Oh, it's important to understand that going in. And not only that, but feel comfortable enough to like speak up for yourself. Absolutely. Because I think um, teamwork is key. Mm -hmm. And I think our doctors are a wealth of information from all the years of experience that they've had seeing other patients, their medical training, all of that. And we as patients are the expert in our own bodies and what's going on and our symptoms. So when you merge those two and have a conversation with your doctor, not going in and saying, look, I have MS, I'm sure of it. Can you do an MRI? Or rather, I've been doing some research and some of my symptoms line up do you think i'm on the right track is it worth looking into a conversation is what we want and that gives them the chance to go oh yeah i think you might be onto something there let's order the test or go well i really don't think it is that because you have this and this and this or you don't have this and this and this and so you know either way you win if you keep it a conversation because you're that much closer to getting to the bottom of the problem so yeah i really think you know conversation and teamwork can it's key and it can happen i agree with you 100 and audience this is how we get to this point in the conversation what is toxic positivity because susie says some things that are very true and teamwork healthy conversations how important mm. is healthy dialogue with one another and understanding what healthy dialogue really is what genuine conversations really look like what they are and how impactful our words are so what is tox toxic positivity what is that that's what we're getting into right now and this is how all this ties into it ties in together. So Susie, can you let the audience know from your experience what exactly toxic positivity is? Well, my from my perspective where I sit as someone, you know, whose kind of main issues have been chronic illness, toxic positivity is when someone else imposes positivity on us. And I will say this, I I struggle with the word toxic because I think usually it's well-meaning usually that person who is imposing that positivity on us wants the best for us doesn't know what to say so they're just trying to like look at the bright side uh unfortunately they tell us to do that so i like the term negative positivity because it is still has negative effects on the receiver in that conversation but toxic is very strong and i think we as the receiver do have to leave some room for the benefit of the doubt and recognize that the person you know saying the 
cliches like look at the bright side just stay positive everything happens for a reason it could be worse right those are examples of negative positivity and i th i think that when a person says those things it isn't actually all about us it's them uncomfortable with the conversation don't know what to say or it's them uncomfortable with their own emotions and don't know what to do with ours they just want the best and cliches will pop top of mind because we hear them so many times and it's just what what people say um because they don't know what else to replace it with i just had a conversation i had two conversations recently about grief on this show mm -hmm. and we were speaking about um the cliche statements that people make when somebody passes away and how we handle those dealing with grief and the one thing that came out of those conversations that was like so important was we don't know how to deal with feelings. Feelings make people so uncomfortable and we haven't quite learned how to just let people feel. Yes. And how to let people operate in the space that they're in and just support them through it. We we have this tendency to want to fix everything. We want to we think that we need to offer up some sort of dialogue that's going to fix something that isn't really broken. Just mm. let me feel it and let me mm. process it and let me work through those processes and come out on the other side. You don't have to hit me with the cliche statements. That's not making it better. You don't have to do that. Instead, like change those statements into really finding out what it is that I need. Mm. Maybe I just need you to sit there next to me quietly or hug me or just be there when I take me to coffee one day and like, let's just like create some sense of normalcy in my life because it's all shaken up. We don't need all of the the kind of trained dialogue that has been given to us, like that condition. We It's not necessary. And I think that's key that why aren't we asking what the person needs? Like, why are we just assuming? You know, I've, I've lost some people in my life. No one's so close to me that uh, I personally have received uh, lasagnas, but my family has. Why do we just jump to this you know, this is going to help you. And I honestly think when we jump to cliches or lasagnas, it's because it, it makes us feel like we've done something. Like you said, we so often don't ask what the person needs. And it's a simple but really big and important question. Like, what is it that, that I can do with you, for you? And the next day, it might be something different. we got to keep asking. we got to keep asking. But I, th I think there are also reframes to some of the cliches that don't feel so you know pat answery or dismissive that can be supportive so i think if we in conversation can stop and think about our words even if it's mid-sentence even if we find ourselves i do it too like i'm in this with with all of you i'm learning what to say what not to say i'll find myself saying something and i realize now it's okay to say whoa you know what Never mind. Like, that's stupid. Me telling you to be positive when you've just got a cancer diagnosis is not helpful. I'm sorry. Like, just we can own up to it. But I do think if we think about our words and try to flip what we've got to say, like in the example of grief that you just said, I would imagine that instead of saying God just needed another angel after somebody's lost their child, like, no, that is not helpful and what do you think that does to someone's perception of god like if they ever had a positive perception that's certainly not going to help it you know god's taking their child because he needs or she needs another angel but what if we said something like your little girl was such an angel and i'm so thankful 
I got to know her. Like if you if you want to make it about an angel, you can you can change that sentence. You know, I think feeling your feelings, letting other people feel your feelings, like you were saying, Julie, is so important. Why do we so often say, "Oh, don't cry"? No, 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 no. Go ahead and cry. Like give permission to feel your feelings and recognize if you can that that person just needs that moment, that shoulder, your time, even silently just to sit with them while they cry. It's not about you in that moment. It's not about what makes you feel comfortable. I just think if we kind of run through the list of cliches that we have out there, we can typically find a way, like everything happens for a reason. Well, first of all, when it does it, second of all, if it does, and I'm not here to argue that, if it does, we might never know what the reason is, so it's not helpful. How about, I don't understand why life has to be so hard for you right now. I just think we need to think hard about our words because they really, really do make a difference. I'm with you 100% with that. I'm learning that mm. and putting those, those practices into play on a daily basis. And I think people are moving way too fast. Like you just need to slow it down because like that's when you'll catch it. That's when you're able to correct it. That's when you're able to feel it yourself and understand it and to project that level of empathy to the person that you're dealing with. So I think it's really important for us to even do that much. Just was yesterday watching an episode of Firefly Lane. Not quite done. So don't tell me the, answer, the, the ending if you know it already, Julie. I guess I'm going to, oh, I don't want it to be a spoiler. Anyway, difficult situation happens between in within the friendship health-wise. And I was sitting there watching this going, actually, because they kind of dealt with this a little bit in the show about, like, they gave examples of people saying unhelpful things. And I thought, what would I say in that circumstance? Like, how, how would I handle that? And now, some of that's going to de depend on the level of your relationship, the individual, because some people, you know, like humor is going to get them through or some people, you know, it, it is just that listening ear or that shoulder to cry on, maybe even the lasagna. Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on the person uh, and again, ask. But it really made me, it kind of caught me. I'm like, oh, I talk about this all the time, negative positivity. And I'm sitting here going, I don't know what I would have said. Now, I will say there's one statement that you can't lose by saying, and that is, I don't know what to say because that in itself is so supportive it shows the magnitude that there are no words there are no words to deal with this hard thing and i just i don't know what to say and trust me as someone who has got bad news had difficult times and also said it to others the relief in that statement and the the feeling of being understood is huge and you're not even really saying anything but you are trust me you are i don't know what to say so like from your own experience like going through things that you've been through medically and probably having to share these things with friends and family Based on your experience, what are some of the effects of this? What have some some things that have been said to you? How have those things made you feel? You know, one thing that people like to say, and I've, I've been thinking about this at night when I'm not sleeping. When you say something like, oh, I have type 1 diabetes, they'll come back with, oh, I know someone who had type 1 diabetes and they died or and they went blind or and they have kidney disease. And we like to say it's in the name of being relatable. 
I'm breaking that down right now and I'm, I haven't come to any conclusions as to why we jump to that so often. And I, I do that too. I mean, someone tells me they have a headache. Oh, I've had a headache for a week. I mean, why do we right away make it about us? So I think that's, that's a flaw, but yeah, I mean, I don't even have a reframe for that. If someone says, uh, like I just got cancer or I just got diagnosed with, uh, lupus or pick something, uh, try to stop yourself and again apologize if you need to if you say it but like don't don't go to the oh i knew someone even if i think personally people might disagree with me but i think even if the outcome was positive then it it kind of feels a little bit like pressure i knew someone with with cancer uh, breast cancer and they had surgery but now like you know it's 10 years on and they're doing great well, the person who just got diagnosed can't necessarily see that far ahead and can't necessarily believe that they're going to have that same outcome. And they may or may not. It feels kind of like we can't win. Again, I default to, I don't know what to say. I think the effects of having negative positivity aimed at us is so detrimental because A, it's exhausting. We're already struggling and now someone is imposing a feeling that we really wish we had but are really struggling to, you know to find in that moment second it feels a little bossy keep your chin up just stay positive no i i can't handle one more thing i'm up to my eyeballs and try to manage whatever news i've gotten whatever symptoms i have to manage or treatments or whatever i don't know that i can also just stay or be positive in this moment. I just got to feel this. Like, I just got to feel what I'm feeling. So I, I think that it it can really impact the person in ways that we don't realize when we say it because it, it feels just like a sentence when you when you say it to someone. It just feels like another sentence in a conversation. Although it's interesting because I just was um, out for lunch with some friends the other day. And one of the women that was there was telling this story about a younger woman friend that she had made um, that had just had a miscarriage. And it was really complicated. And um, I won't go into details. It's not my story to tell. The woman said, oh, yeah, it was so hard. Uh, and I said to her, well, I mean, the good news is you know you're fertile and then she said but nobody really wants to hear that when they've just had a miscarriage like that's not really helpful is it she recognized it perhaps not in time to say that she recognized it to to the younger friend but even she kind of knew in her gut actually when i say those words out loud they don't feel right i think we have to you know kind of hone in on our intuition that like eh, maybe this isn't helpful it really is impactful on maybe not our mental health as a whole but certainly in that moment in time when we're struggling to you know have have those those sentences thrown at us i think it goes back to our generation and the generations before us weren't really raised on feeling mm -hmm. push through it you know Today's a new day, you know, that sweep it under the rug mentality. And that's why everyone cringes, especially when they encounter people who like to talk about things. It's it's a very uncomfortable water to swim in. <laughs> it, it gets wavy really quick for some people. So I think that running to like 
those relatable statements is a way of even them. It, it's it's actually sad, but it's like it's a way of them even comforting themselves because they're they're trying yes. to escape their feelings. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head when it comes to that. Yeah. And they don't realize like you escaping your feelings and not willing to feel, not realizing how damaging it is to the person who is actually feeling. Yes. So that that's that's just for that's exactly what I get from it when I when I see those things or hear those things like me being able to acknowledge myself and look at the other person and acknowledge them and I'm like they're doing that because they're really uncomfortable with my feelings yes and, and their own and their oh. own and they're yes. trying to escape this moment as quickly as possible like that retreat retreat you know that's exactly what that is well and I think you're right the previous generations had that kind of attitude but then you've got now the online world where there's a sect of the population who are are pushing that message and because the internet is what it is those messages can be incessant at us like you know have a have a good mindset be positive all all of that attitude of you know if you believe it you can do it visualize the outcome and it will be it, you know, it will work out for you. Now, I have some personal opinions about that. Um, but, <laughs> but I think here's where we go wrong. Like I said earlier, it's when that's imposed on others. If you can feel positive by telling yourself those things, go for it. Like if you can be positive by reminding yourself to be positive, 100%, I support you. But you can't impose it on others. And so I just think in this day and age now, because uh, social media overload, we just sometimes can be sitting or laying in our sick beds, watching the the world go by, telling us like we're failing if we're struggling. And I just it's 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 harmful. It is. It's harmful. That's Another reason why like, I feel like selective hearing is so important because there is obviously a, po a positive message here, but there's a real message here. Like everything that I discuss every single episode is it it's in that that field of uncomfortable yet yeah, let's let's try to get comfortable with it. Um, that perfectly imperfect, if you will. Because the, the internet is saturated. Even when I go to make posts, I'm like, oh my God. And it's like, you want to do this because you don't want to be screaming into a void. You know, you want your message to be heard. But it is oversaturated with mm -hmm. highlight reels versus realistic yeah. reels. Like yes. the, yes. yeah, um, going on a growth journey is a beautiful struggle. Mm. Let's not just paint the pictures of, yeah, I got up and I did affirmations and I, you know, I, yes. I meditated today and I did this and I did that. No, let's talk about the real behind it. I cried. I had a bunch of mental breakdowns. I struggled with depression, like yeah. didn't it's eat for a month, the burnout, like, and that's why I love talking about that because I'm like, nobody points out like the, the real journey of how we're getting there. Yeah. And, and I do a lot of those work. things. I do a lot of those things. So it's not that I've not, I, I, you know, I, Yes, meditation can be huge. Uh, I use deep breathing exercises often. I remind myself to like be in the now and 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 relish in the beauty around me. Absolutely. If I might share, Julie, 
one of the ways I cope that I think kind of shows exactly what you're saying uh, as far as, you know, all of it. I have found that whenever I get a new difficult diagnosis or uh, or possible diagnosis or uh, once about every six or eight months I hit the wall when it comes to the diabetes and I just like overwhelm can't do it it's a 24 7 disease it's relentless uh and yet you can live a full life with it not saying you can't but also it's never going to leave you alone I go on a holiday, it comes with me. Um, and so I'll hit the wall and I'll just be like absolutely exhausted from it. I recognize now if I give myself a day to just feel everything. I warn my husband. I, you know, ask a friend if maybe we can take a walk, but tell her this is the day. And then I let myself cry. I let myself hide under the duvet for a few extra hours in the morning. I go and I yell my troubles to the cows in the field. I have a conversation with that friend on a walk. I just, I vent all of it. I just let it out. And I can tell you since I've been doing that every time the next day, I'm like, okay, I can do this again. So I can be positive. Trust me, I'm not against positivity. Absolutely, I want you to know that. But we just really have to be careful with our words and how we impose that on people. It's that reminder of holding on to being mindful. Mm. Mm -hmm. Being mindful. Because if life is life for all of us. So like, it's just like, just remember that. Even if you're like getting ready to jump off, just stop for a second and be like, wait a minute. I had a bad day or I went through this or I went through that. Like, I can't imagine how that person is feeling or what that person is experiencing right now. I know what I'm going through mm. and how I feel. So let's not take away them having that same experience and, and let people be there. Let people be there yes. and support people while they're being there. Yes. Uh, that's why I think key to friendship, a uh, successful friendship is when um, they will listen to your troubles and you will listen to theirs as well as celebrate the good times. But it's got to go both ways. And I think when people are just venting to their friends, of course, those friends aren't going to stick around because nobody could take in all of that hard all of the time. So there's days when we vent, there's days when we cry with our friends, but then there's days that we, you know, go to lunch and just have an everyday conversation or we, you know, celebrate an accomplishment or whatever it might be. Um, so it it is, again, all the things. It, mm -hmm. it can't just be that we get stuck in, in the negative. And so I think as the receiver of some of these cliches and conversations, we it is our responsibility to recognize it isn't all about us, even though we're the ones in that moment particularly struggling. And again, give the benefit of the doubt that, you know, they probably mean well and they're, they are just trying to help um, because it hurts so bad we can sometimes just get angry at, at that person and not factor in that, oh, maybe the picture is bigger than just, you know, how they made me feel in that moment. I've been telling myself, so like, don't take it personal. Mm. It's not about you. And you know, it is, it is, <laughs> I'm learning, like I'm, I'm learning, learning <laughs> at this stage of my life, I am started to learn just how much it's really not about me. Like, it's shocking. Why did I think for so long? And it's not like I taught, uh, uh, you know, I was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not like I was, um, you know, telling myself it's all about me. I w but 
by my responses and my actions it just shows like oh you think the world kind of revolves and nope it doesn't it doesn't i wanted to ask like but i feel like we covered it like i like i'm looking at my questions like we just covered all this in conversation but (laughs) i want to be like very specific like i'm going to ask this question anyways even though i know like we've hit it a few times in this conversation just because I want to be very intentional with this, like with this part of it getting out to the audience. So if they are experiencing this with doing it or some being on the receiving end of it, they know how to kind of approach it when it comes up again. So I want to know, like, from you, like, what are some positive and healthier approaches that you would recommend? Hmm. Well, we did talk about, you know, asking. I think that's key. Um, uh, You know, stop, pause. That's okay. Space is okay. Um, We don't have to fill gaps all the time. And I'm not the best at that. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But I think, you know, we need to remind ourselves, take a breath and ask the person what they might need. I think, again, if it's a cliche, don't say it. Think about other ways to, to show that you really do support them and that you're listening. You know, statements like, wow, I can't even imagine how you're feeling. Because we we think we might know a little bit, but if we've, ne- we've never been in their shoes. So I just, I just think we need to stop, take a breath, ask, take some of those cliches, um, you know, instead of be thankful for the good things in your life. Maybe say, I'm really thankful you're in my life. Another one that applies to is at least you're still alive. Well, nope, (laughs) maybe, maybe not that. Maybe I'm so glad to have you in my life. Here's one that gets thrown around a lot. And that's it. It could always be worse, right? We think that's, that's helpful because we're pointing out that it's not the worst that's ever happened, but it's not because you know what? Of course, of course. It could always be worse unless we're dead. Like, uh, in fact, that might not always even be the worst thing. Suffering might be worse than death. I'm not sure. But I've had worse within my own life. I know that eyeball surgery might be worse than having my toenails removed. But the day that I had my toenails removed, I was going through the emotions of, oh, ugly toes. Oh, this is going to hurt. I really don't want this to happen. It's It's still a hard day. And again, I'll reiterate. With all of that said, we need to be gracious to the people who are saying the things. Yeah, we need to leave room for that. I hope we do because otherwise I'm screwed because I, like I said, I say dumb things all the time. So do I. And sometimes I say them faster than I even realize. And then Mm. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) backtrack. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about your book. Okay. Um. I want you to share with your audience some things about your book and where they can get it. Yeah. So, like I said, passionate about that relationship between doctors and patients, which happen to be two humans sitting in a room trying to problem solve. And some of the tips in there are practical, such as, you know, come prepared. I always take a document that has all my medication and doses listed on it my previous health history the doctors that i see regularly trust me they love that when i slide that across the desk i mean guaranteed 
you see a new doctor, they're going to ask you if you're on any medications. Well, A, you've just saved at least three minutes because they don't have to take notes, wait for you to try to remember what you're on, how much you take, blah, blah, blah. And they usually just say, can I keep this? And I say, absolutely. Yes, you, yes, you can. So some of the tips are really, really practical like that. And some of them are things like, you know, form your thoughts as questions, like I mentioned before. Or, you know what, if your doctor has gone above and beyond, a thank you card goes a long way. Like it, it really does. And they will remember your name if you send them a thank you card for a job well done. And uh, I think we can set the tone. We can walk in after an hour's wait and go like, you know, I've been waiting for an hour out there. Or we can say, oh, you're running late. I hope you're not too stressed out. Like, how's your day going? Oh, let me tell you, the results of those two statements are very different from each other. And when we actually show that even though we're struggling and we're there with a problem, we recognize that their day might not be going smoothly. It makes a difference. The other thing about the book is that I've woven stories from my life throughout it um, as well. So every third tip or so, there's a little story of kind of the tip in action, what I wish I would have done differently or or how something, you know, kind of went well. So um, it's, if I dare say, a slightly entertaining read. It's not really dry, I'll tell you that. Um, so it's... Um, if you can make the topic of going to the doctor fun, hopefully I've achieved that. Some reviews say I have. So uh, so there you go. But you can get Help the Doctor Help You on Amazon, wherever there's Amazon. So yeah, pretty much anywhere. Okay, so now it's time for the big question. And the big question comes with every single guest and every single show. Hit me so, with it. And the big question is, what does selective hearing mean to you? Okay, so socials, uh, I'll, I'm going to, give a link to my link tree in the show notes that has links to pretty much everything. I will say I'm most active on Instagram as medical miss stress, which is, uh, so it's at medical miss underscore stress. And the idea is that we want to miss that stress, get rid of it. Um, so that's where I usually hang out, but I'm also on TikTok and, uh, Facebook. I have a weekly short support level letter um that can go to your e email if you would like called convos with carlos one care one quote one question and um again it's just you know to talk about relevant things usually illness related but often you know something that's happened or something that may have happened and then a quote to think about and a question to think about but they're not long trust me um and that also is in the link tree link and i do have a facebook group called no one wants illness if you also want just that you know more of a, a support from from a group of people just starting starting with that so it's it's slowly growing the big question what does selective hearing mean to me well first of all it means that my husband is only hearing certain words like football game or food. But seriously, selective hearing, I think to me, it means that we are choosing to hear only what we want to hear or what we are comfortable with hearing. And we are dismissing away the rest, whether that be like we talked about, you know, making it about us, or I have that headache, I have a headache too, or whatever. Selective hearing, we like to grab a hold of what, what feels good in our hearts and minds and just, eh, Maybe ignore what else the person is saying. So hopefully that answers that big question. I'll tell you, I'll share something with you. When I first started this show, when I was doing it from my living room couch on Facebook Live, the first trailer that I ever put out where I asked, what does selective hearing mean? I asked myself that question. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, it's the ability to hear what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, we are on the same page, Julie. We, we most definitely are. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. And everyone, all of the information that Susie just gave you will also be in the show description of this episode. So just hit the drop down tag, read and click. Okay. And thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed talking with you. I hope that all of you take some beautiful gems away from this conversation and apply them to life moving forward. And I will be back next week with another special guest. So until next time, this is Selective Hearing.